Thank you for joining us. This is the Invisible Man, and I have on the line with me modern-day abolitionist Miss Ida Hakeem, who is also called Pharaoh's daughter, for her assistance in helping the Honorable Silas Muhammad make his way into the United Nations on behalf of Afro-descendants. Hello, Miss Hakeem. How are you today? I'm very well. Salam alaikum. Alaikum salam. Well. It's time to talk about the historical actions you were a part of. But before we get specifically there, let me ask you the very first question. Can Afro-descendants fulfill their fight for reparations by approaching the American government in the battle for what their ancestors deserve, which is for all of the unpaid labor they gave for 310 years? That's a really good question, because uh, a lot of people, I think, believe that's the only option. Uh, I see some that are going to their city for reparations, some that are going to the U.S. government for reparations. I uh, see that the um, U.S. government made any conversation about that for a long time. And uh, it's my viewpoint, uh, my simply my viewpoint is that uh, Afro descendants, Afro descendants are scattered across the region of the Western Hemisphere in a number of different countries. These are all, you know, it could be uh, one family got separated to um, Brazil and Jamaica and uh, the United States. We don't know where the families were scattered but they are scattered across that entire region. And um, I certainly believe that reparations are due for the entire family. That would mean a lot of different governments would need to be involved in paying those reparations, <clears throat> including the US government. And it would mean that they, uh, there would be friends at the United Nations. Certainly there might be countries that would stand in support of this reparations call. So my favor, of course, falls toward the United Nations. That's where we did our work. And uh, that's where the uh, umbrella pretty much covers the entire family. And as you remember last time, we talked about uh, the chosen people uh, concept, you know, that the biblical chosen people have a uh, we have a family that has claimed to be the chosen people, and I kind of uh, contested that last week and said, uh, I'm not so sure that there's any evidence that was the case. And so we're looking at, instead, could the chosen people be the Afro-descendants who are scattered across the region? And I think there's a very good likelihood that they are. So, uh, there might be some level of success in approaching the U.S. government, but I would think the chances are, and the support would be much stronger 
if the United Nations was approached by Afro-descendants from across the region and uh, the United Nations stepped in to help bring this to pass. It's a very nice, a very comforting thought. I think it, it would, uh, it would really, it would really serve the chosen to do it that way. Okay. Uh, in relation to that, the question is, when the term Pharaoh is used, does it apply to the President of the United States? Why or why not? Well, right now, uh, it appears that the President of the United States doesn't really have much power is a figurehead. And uh, it's been that way for a while. A couple of decades ago, uh, Mr. Muhammad chose the United Nations in which to bring that message. And that would mean, of course, that that would be the seat of government. The seat of global government would be Pharaoh's court. And uh, it makes sense to me that Pharaoh's court would be in the global government because the Afro-descendants are scattered across the region from many different countries. So it would need to be the, the court of the global government. Mm, yes, ma'am. Now, we're getting closer to the uh, exact title and topic. So the question now is, in your fulfillment of Pharaoh's daughter, it involves your contribution to the liberation of Afro-descendants as you assisted the Honorable Silas Muhammad in entering into the UN. How do you feel about making that particular history? Well, I feel to be referred to as Pharaoh's daughter. That's a privilege and an honor. I appreciate it. And I also, you know, out of modesty must realize that there are a number of my peers, reparation supporters from white America that have stood in favor as well. So, you know, there is one Pharaoh's daughter in there. Okay. And, yeah, and uh, I, I prefer to look at it that way. I'm honored to, to be referred to as such, and it is a, a privilege. Well, is it incorrect? And I think you just answered that to call you Pharaoh's daughter, and you just gave a, a wonderful explanation. Thank you so much. Now let's get to the actual historical part. If you would, please take the listeners back to the moment when you decided to assist Mr. Muhammad and share how you did it. If you could, step by step, take your time, and I promise not to interrupt. So just let <laughs> us know. All right. I, I will. I've thought about this, uh, you know, for a long many years, thought about how it came to pass. Uh, back in about 1983, I married a black man who was had once been a member of the nation and who had uh, left the nation upon the passing of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And uh, we got together and, you know, I cared for him a great deal. And I saw that he really wanted to be associated with the nation. And it it was a sadness on his part that he could not be. And uh, so on, I wrote to Mr. Silas Muhammad uh, with a question of what can I do? You know, this is, this is the issue, what can I do? And he answered back in the Muhammad Speaks newspaper a couple of months later, uh, 
that I could support the call for reparations. That was something I had never thought of. And I didn't even know very much about what reparations would be. On giving it some thought, I thought, oh, boy, white people are going to want to kill me for this. Mm. And I said, I'll go ahead and do it anyway. That was the answer to my question. How can I help? And the answer was support reparations. So I began to study. Uh, I went to, I, I remember a conference in D.C. where I met uh, Queen Mother Dorothy Lewis, and she gave me a bunch of materials on reparations. And I started to learn about it and learn about the different organizations and so forth. And but it wasn't until that was probably about 1988 or 89. Uh, and I think it was around 1992 that Mr. Muhammad asked me to see if I could establish a consultative NGO. That's a non-governmental organization. You uh, need to qualify for that in order to be able to approach the United Nations on behalf of civil society. So the, the organization has to have a certain number of members. It has to have certain qualifying work that it's done. And uh, it was uh, quite a challenge because uh, at the moment, you know, at that point in time, there was already an NGO that represented uh, American minorities. It was called IRAM, International mm -hmm. Human, Human Rights Association of American Minorities. And it was headed by Dr. Cly and his wife. And uh, one NGO cannot go in and establish a society group uh, for which another NGO already exists. So... Um, Knowing that uh, Mr. Muhammad knew that he had to accomplish more than he could with Iran, and so he asked me to see what I could do. And I thought about it. Uh, I can't. Uh, I can't establish this organization uh, for um, for Afro descendants. So I am going to establish an organization for white people who support reparations. Yes, ma'am. And. Uh, I did that. It was in about 92 that uh, uh, we established the organization as a um, uh, nonprofit. Then we had to build it, of course. And I've met and worked with some really wonderful people, you know, uh, really good, strong reparation supporters who came in with me and uh, we wrote books. We went on ra radio and television shows. We I worked um, to establish the organization. We worked hard to make it international. And what I did during that time was I, I fulfilled all of the obligations that you have to fulfill in order to qualify to be a consultative NGO. And it was about in 1997 that I was informed uh, our organization would be considered at the, uh, at the meeting in New York with regard to the consultative NGOs. So I attended that meeting and I remember going there with uh, Maya Hadi. She was mm -hmm. a, a, an ambassador as was I. And uh, we went to that meeting. Of course, I was very nervous. The uh, Cure Caucasians United for Reparations and Emancipation came up and there was only one small argument against it uh, saying we did not have enough international members. We had probably three or four in 
we had 150 members all together. So uh, we did get the NGO status. And that was, I felt like that was an enormous achievement. It really, really made me happy because that means, and we can go in. Um, they, we were informed that we could submit a statement to the subcommission. Uh, uh, what's it called? Subcommission on Promotion and Protection of Human Rights of Minorities. So yes, we wrote, uh, I got together with Mr. Muhammad a written to the subcommission and submitted that and sure enough uh, probably two or three months later we got an invitation to attend the uh, United Nations Working Group on Minorities in Geneva first meeting that we attended and uh, I oh, I'll always remember it because uh, at that meeting there were experts from, let's see, the, um, the chief uh, expert was from Norway. There was one from Chile, uh, Mr. Bingoa. There was Mr. Martinez from Cuba. There was uh, an expert uh, from Russia. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. And uh, there was uh, one from uh, uh, Morocco. So, we group of experts, they were all subcommissioners. And uh, Attorney Abu Baka, Mrs. Muhammad spoke, and I spoke, and Mr. Muhammad spoke. We all spoke to that particular meeting. And what Mr. Muhammad asked for, it was um, he asked for a forum for the United Nations to organize a forum so that Afro descendants across the country, all of their region of the Americas could come together and discuss reparations. And uh, it, it was uh, really exciting in that the, a forum was something that this organization supported. And throughout our tenure at the United Nations, that very first request that he made, they organized altogether three forums for Afro-descendants to be able to come together and discuss reparations and discuss what is even more vital, and that is a collective identity. Because to be recognized by the United Nations, you do need to have a collective identity. And to make a claim of violation of human rights, you also need to have standing. So those things are really what was achieved at the UN, and it is a, a considerable achievement in that Afro-descendants had no recognition prior to this time, no collective recognition. They had no, we can openly say there was no human rights that are granted to minorities. That's the right to speak your own language, the right, you know, worship according to your own religion and so forth. All of those rights had been destroyed. So not only was there a very good case for reparations, for damages, but there was achieved collective recognition by the body and recognition by the group itself, the Afro-descendants, a chosen name and a chosen identity and even a definition of what an Afro-descendant is, is uh, included in the work that was accomplished. It was quite 
quite wonderful. Well, and it's a part of history now. Yes, it is. It's part of history now. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to take a moment to ask about what you just said. When you were given the task to form the non-governmental organization, that's an NGO, right? Right. Mm -hmm. You had to study how to do it? Oh, yes. That, there's a complex set of rules and things you have to do in order to uh, qualify. You know, a certain amount of time and energy and organization has to be put in, and then we had to gain members as well. So yes, it, was a, it was a big task. It took, well, let's say 93 to 97. So it took about five years and, uh, gaining members and writing books and uh, uh, meeting together. And uh, it took a lot of effort. I really appreciate who joined with me in that organization. Uh, that Some of them are still around and still friends. Yes, ma'am. Well, with the establishment of the NGO, the non-governmental organization, uh, the question is, with the establishment of the non-governmental association, you were able to get people on board to assist you, and there didn't seem to be much of a problem with them understanding, because you said something about human rights had been uh, discussed and so forth. So I guess I'm trying to say the world understood the people, the subcommissioners understood the plight of us here in America and throughout the uh, diaspora. They did. And, and uh, there's something else I can go into as well. Please. And we would say, uh, you know, Mr. Muhammad isn't the first one to bring something to the United Nations. There have been other NGOs that went there as well. But we need to look at what, what covenant uh, did they go there under? What oh. human rights law did they claim was uh, violated? Mm -hmm. I know some went under the claim of genocide. Some went under the claim of racism. There was a lot of push for that, uh, you know, the, the Convention Against Racism. And Mr. Now, Muhammad, me. was that in Durban? Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. Yes, ma'am. Uh, what Mr. Muhammad had uh, studied and the uh, particular group that uh, we were uh, encouraged by the UN had to do with a covenant that protects the right of minorities. Especially, there is one uh, little article in that covenant called Article 27 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. That covenant protects the right of minorities living in a country to speak their own language, to gather, gather together, to worship together in their own and to not have those rights of identity denied. And that's exactly the rights that were lost in slavery and taken intentionally. The identity was taken. There was no memory of language, no memory of uh, how you worship God, no memory of your culture uh, whatsoever. A few people, perhaps uh, the Maroons and so forth, and the Garufana, mm -hmm. did 
a little bit of culture, but in most cases across the entire diaspora, what was destroyed and what is protected under international law is the right of a minority to its identity. So we can say, you know, we did, uh, I remember going to the library with Mr. Muhammad and finding books to confirm that this particular covenant was ratified by the U.S. Congress and so forth. And it was, and it is, uh, I believe, the absolutely correct place to approach because there's no way that identity can be restored by these governments. It's You don't know what your language and culture, you, uh, your identity has been destroyed. And so a new identity has to be achieved. And you have to reclaim again for yourselves the identity of who you are. And, uh, and along with that comes wages and compensation or reparations. Mm. I have one question. Mm-hmm. And I hope it doesn't sound too silly. Why is it so important to have an identity? Well, I think identity is inherent in the human being. It's part of being a human being. Being is to know your ancestry, to know what your ancestors believed and what they brought down to you and what they gave to you, to know the language that uh, your ancestors have spoken for how long, the the mother tongue that was developed. Uh, These things are inherent in the human being, and to destroy them is to destroy something that's vital. Mm. You mentioned another word uh, along with claim right after you said standing. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that and how it applies to what you were doing standing? Well, uh, if a if a group is not uh, recognized, then they don't have it, you know, they don't have any ground to stand on under the law. They, the attempt had to be made to create a new political identity. And with that political identity could come the right for, uh, for that group to approach under the law and say, this has been done to our group. We are minorities in many different countries. We've experienced this and so forth. So that would be the identity would be important to uh, the standing at the United Nations to be able to approach. It doesn't give you right to go before the world court or anything like that. Oh. It's just no, that, that it's governments that go to the world court. It's not um, civil society. But civil society groups having standing would mean that, yes, we are Afro-descendants and we're bringing this claim as Afro-descendants recognized by the United Nations as such. Yes, ma'am. Now, that collective identity was achieved through uh, a forum sponsored by the UN in La Ceiba, Honduras in 2002. Yes, uh, there were actually, uh, there was a forum held in Geneva. Mm -hmm. That was the the first one was held in Geneva. And um, uh, the certain uh, powers wanted to direct uh, the people's minds toward racism rather than the rights of minorities. 
And of course, with racism, it can always, everything can be watered down and Afro-descendants are no longer uh, a category onto themselves, mm -hmm. a defined people. So there was some uh, interventions with regard to racism and it was, uh, there was just basically one statement that was made where Mr. Muhammad called upon them to recognize what rights had been destroyed. And then the one in Honduras was uh, excellent. It came out quite well. There were a number of countries there, representatives uh, of Afro-descendants in different countries, uh, different organizations that were invited. Uh, there were translators. And it was in uh, Honduras that the identity was discussed and the term Afro-descendant was agreed upon as an name for the group, for the collective. And the definition was also written in Honduras, although it was taken, the definition was taken then to the next forum. The definition is so important. And I wanted to mention that here in the United States, there, you know, there are a number of organizations that support reparations. And, and uh, several of them have uh, articulated as to what, uh, one of them is called ADOS. It's American Descendants of Slaves. And so they're articulating what the, what the group is. The group has an identity. The identity is that we're descendants of enslaved Africans. So that, that narrows the number. It takes away, um, you know, people of color. Mm -hmm. It takes away uh, the immigrants from Africa. It takes away, uh, a lot that, that would try to join the group, the group contains only persons who have ancestry that uh, went through enslavement in the United States. So uh, the Afro-descendant definition makes it very clear who, who this people are, who belongs to this category, Afro-descendant. And that was necessary too, as, um, you're always going to see uh, an attempt to uh, have others join uh, based upon racism and, and discrimination and so forth. And it needs to be made very clear that this group is from enslaved ancestors. Something that you said about a nation, a government, uh, in terms of the uh, damages, are they paid to organizations, uh, groups, uh, reparations are actually paid to nations? Is that correct? Well, in this case, I I can't say. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can't say because I think, you know, there are so many things that need to be worked out by Afro-descendants themselves as to what, you know, worked out as to what, the reparations would be, uh, how the reparations would be paid. You need help on that. And that is another reason why the United Nations, would it would help to have the UN involved in the, the reparations study and decisions with regard to that. Because, uh, you know, that's another one of the ways that they try to weaken the reparations argument is to cause Afro-descendants to fight among themselves about what it should be and who's in charge and all of those things. Uh, so, you know, that that's a way to weaken the movement, to cause the people to squabble and 
and argue over who uh, who makes what decision. So there really does, you know, and this is this is just my viewpoint, but there does no, no. seem seem to be a very strong need for more gathering together and more collective decision making. And, uh, you know, because the, the people really do get used and abused when they can't come together and make decisions for themselves as a collective. And, uh, you know, it would be wonderful if Afro descendants from the entire South, Central, and North America could come together. It is uh, the UN who organizes things like that. But, you know, I, my desire would be to see it a coming together and making these decisions. You'd have much more power that way and would not be so easily uh, caused to argue amongst yourselves. Yes, ma'am. Well, I think that takes me to the next question, and you you are touching on it. What is the next step in securing reparations, in your opinion? Yeah, that I was, you know, I have, uh, at this point, you know, as a supporter of reparations, my hope would be to see exactly about attempts to organize and include and be inclusive and be, you know, and bring together uh, leadership from across the U.S. and from across the entire diaspora for that leadership to come together and discuss this and uh, come to a decision as to how the funds or the reparations would be dispersed and to come to decisions about who qualifies and come to decisions, uh, you know, of, on many different levels of what reparations would involve. So there needs to be a, uh, a movement to come together. And uh, that would certainly be my hope that, uh, that those decisions can be discussed and maybe even some assistance provided for Afro descendants to come together. Although, I don't know where that assistance would come from. If if someone who was extremely wealthy wanted to put some money into that, that would be a good investment. So for anyone who's listening, uh, that would be a good uh, cause to contribute to. It surely would. You know, yes, ma'am. Now, bring, go ahead. I was just going to say bring bring the leaders together. And yes, yes. Be inclusive. Okay. Uh, from this segment, what is the most important take you'd like for the listeners to receive? Well, I, what I'd like the listeners to begin to think about is the fact that Afro-descendants, that, that the human family that was destroyed in this way doesn't just exist in the United States. The United States suffered very greatly. Afro-descendants in the U.S. suffered very greatly, maybe more than some in some other countries. But we did a study when we were at the United Nations. We wrote a paper that was submitted at the very end when, when uh, the door was closed. 
we submitted a paper and it pointed out that Afro-descendants across the entire region were at the bottom everywhere. I, I attended a, an event in Peru and uh, went to the city center and it looked like you know, a few different buildings and it would be uh, the south side of Chicago. The people are the same. These are your brothers and sisters. They look the same. They are the same. They, you know, there's a different culture and a different religion and a different kind of cultural programming. But these are the same people. And, um, and so I would, you know, like to, when people are arguing about, I want the city of Evanston to pay reparations, that mm -hmm. doesn't seem like reparations to me. That it's a good idea, you know, and if they want to provide that, that's fine. But reparations deals with the entire human family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that I would hope that that concept would be begin to enter people's minds as to how much stronger the family is in its large numbers of 250 million individuals. And uh, the possibility that there are some governments around the world who would support this uh, if it uh, reaches the level of if it reaches their ears mm -hmm. and and they are uh, they realize that they can support the Afro-descendant family in obtaining reparations. And I also would like people to think about who would pay the reparations. You know, uh, there are companies that still exist. I remember Deidre Farmer Paleman worked uh, uh, in uh, determining universities. There are governments that participated. There's the Roman Catholic Church for sure that has holds a responsibility. And so, you know, give some thought as to who who would be called upon to pay reparations? Governments involved, yes. Anything else, anyone else. And uh, put the mind there because uh, I think that there are quite a few who are culpable and might want to step up and offer to pay reparations. You know, yes, ideally, I, I, eventually, ideally, as I come to talking to white people about this, I believe this is in essence, a spiritual matter. And, uh, you know, we treat it as political, but for me, it's spiritual. And I think it should be for uh, white people in general. Stop acting like somebody is trying to grab $10 out of your pocket. That's silly. You know, it's silly to react against reparations by thinking that you're you know, you're going to be called to pay something out of your pocket. Uh, stop the wars and turn that money toward reparations. That is a spiritual solution. Wow. I, I want to throw out a term. Maybe it's appropriate at this juncture, maybe not. But as you were speaking, the term original sin, and it's been used with slavery, and it hasn't really been addressed. What do you think? Well, I, I uh, remember being taught about that when I was a little kid, and it scared me to death. <laughs> oh, my God, I don't want to commit the original sin. I wonder what it is. <laughs> oh. So you, a kid, you, you, you're imagining mm -hmm. those things. I don't know. I don't know. Actually, for me, for myself personally, I would say a separation from your mercy, a separation from God. That mm -hmm. is a sin against yourself. 
And, uh, and I do believe that over the hundreds and hundreds of years in which crimes have been committed against people around the world, white people have been separated from their own merciful human core. And I would like to see that restored to us. So that's my thought on original sin. That's the prescription to come back to humanity. To come back to your human core, to understand who you are, that there is no one who is other. There's no one that you can go and bomb and take their resources. You cannot do that. You, you can't grab somebody up and make them a slave. You cannot do that and still be a merciful human being. Yes, ma'am. Well, we are getting close to the end. We have a, a few more minutes. If I could throw out a term, and you can tell me the significance of it, and that term is human rights. What does that make you think of, just the word, the two words, human rights? Well, I hadn't really thought about that, you know, and, and asked it, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, human rights. I think we have a right to freedom. And I, I, obviously, we have a right to our, our culture and our ancestry. We have a right to water. We have a right to, uh, you know, many different things are human rights. Uh, and uh, certainly what happened to our descendants was uh, uh, absolute destruction of their human rights. So that's about as eloquent as I can get on that. I really haven't thought much about it. Are there any closing comments you'd like to make? Well, I want to thank you for bringing these uh, interviews forward. I, I enjoy it. I thank you for, I hope that this is listened to and that uh, it helps people understand a little more what the uh, international aspect of reparations involves uh, and how much uh, spreading the identity of Afro-descendant across the entire region strengthens the argument for reparations and it brings it closer to a reality. So I hope that helps. Oh, yes, ma'am. And thank you. Uh, you're, you're a very important person. As I began the segment, I introduced you as a modern day abolitionist, which is very important. Someone who has taken up the uh, champion and wanting people to live better. And you have done that. Now, do you have any idea what our next segment will cover? Where would you like oh. to go? Well, let, uh, I'll put some thought into that and see if okay. there are some other things I'd like to speak about. Sure. I really, you know, I, I, like to, uh, I like to talk about what white people can achieve for themselves uh, as human beings by supporting the call for reparations uh, for both Afro-descendants and indigenous peoples. I feel like those are two crimes that we have to deal with. And in dealing with it, we actually return to ourselves a far stronger, far more evolved spiritual consciousness. 
Mm, that was very eloquent. So I think the title of the next show will be What Can White People Do to Help Themselves? Oh, how cool. Okay. All right. So that'll be the next topic. I'll let you think about it. And uh, if you have no more comments, we're going to uh, end the program for tonight. Thank you again, Ms. Hakeem. Well, thank you very much. Thank All right. You very much. It's been a pleasure. Yes, ma'am. Uh, so I'm like. Well, thank you so long.